I would invite you, if you have your copies of God's Word, to turn in them to 2 Corinthians, Paul's second letter to the church at Corinth. We have been spending several months together in this letter. We have now reached approximately the, the halfway point in this letter. Um, we certainly have reached the halfway division of what the subject of this letter is all about. This passage that we will look at this morning is a bridge or a transitional passage from Paul's early exposition defending his ministry and the New Covenant ministry into his exhortations to follow to the Corinthians after this section. And so this morning we will be looking at 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 2 through 4. If you would please give attention to the reading of God's holy word. For the word of the Lord is completely inerrant. The word of the Lord is completely sufficient. And the word of the Lord is completely authoritative. 2 Corinthians 7, beginning at verse 2. Make room in your hearts for us. We have wronged no one. We have corrupted no one. We have taken advantage of no one. I do not say this to condemn you, for I said before that you are in our hearts to die together and to live together. I am acting with great boldness towards you. I have great pride in you. I am filled with comfort. In all our affliction, I am overflowing with joy. Thus far the reading of God's holy word. Let's pray for his blessing upon it. O Lord our God, we ask this morning that by the power of your Holy Spirit you would illuminate these words. Make them more than ink on a page, O Lord. Allow us by the power of your word, to know more of who you are, to know more of what you have done, and to know more, O Lord, of the duty that you require of us. This we ask in the mighty name of our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And all God's people said, Amen. Relationships in life are hard. We can feel unjustly criticized by others as we relate to them. We can also feel that others have taken advantage of us or are taking advantage of us. And so a question that comes is, how can we maintain love for others while in the midst of hard circumstances of life? Paul helps us today by showing us that he not only persevered with the Corinthians, but his response to their criticism was to call them back to himself. Paul was living like Jesus. That is also your calling and mine. We are called to live like the Lord Jesus Christ, to love others and to show that we take the initiative in love. And so this morning, Paul shows us about his love in three ways. 
First, he starts with his integrity. He lays out his integrity before us and the Corinthians. And then second, he reminds the Corinthians of the togetherness that they had. How Jesus had brought them together into one family. And then finally, this leads to a boldness, a freedom of speech, a boldness in which Paul speaks to the Corinthians and to you and me across the centuries. Integrity, togetherness, boldness. Well, as we begin here, we must remember, as I said earlier, that this short passage is the hinge of this letter. Now, you know what a hinge is, don't you? It's that piece of metal that causes the door to swing open and shut. It handles whether the door is open fully or closed fully. And so that's what we see here. This passage is the conclusion of Paul's long discourse that started all the way back in chapter 2. It is a part of Paul's appeal to the church to embrace him. He's appealing to the church to see his ministry as the true ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. To embrace the new covenant and the gospel. And to embrace him. It is also, though, a very positive passage. It expresses Paul's confidence in the church. And so it forms the foundation off from which Paul will call upon the Corinthians to follow his instructions in the remainder of the letter as he instructs them about giving, about handling false teachers, and about following the Lord Jesus Christ. And so in this short passage, you can feel the emotion in Paul. All of the sentences in this passage are short. They're very staccato. They're not long, complex sentences. And this is a sign of Paul wearing his heart on his sleeve, if you will, of Paul showing emotion. You've experienced this in life, haven't you? When you are overwhelmed with emotion, perhaps someone has, has done something for you and you're grateful, or perhaps you're just so happy and pleased that someone you haven't seen in a long time is back, you can't get out an eloquent speech. You, you babble. You're lucky to get out a few good words because you're overwhelmed with emotion. That's what I think is a picture of what's happening to Paul here. It's interesting that there are really no, well, there's only one connecting word in all of this passage. Normally, Paul connects his sentences and his thoughts with connecting words like but or and or also or therefore. We don't see that here. And again, it's a sign of Paul just getting the words out emotionally speaking, to the Corinthians and to us. And then finally, we see another trait we've seen before, that Paul moves from the first person plural to the first person singular. singular. He starts out by saying, make room in your hearts for us. We have wronged no one. And then he moves in verse 3 to, I do not say this, for I said before, I am acting with great boldness. All of this lets us know that Paul is deeply committed to the Corinthians. That he loves them deeply. And his emotions are on display for you and me. And so this 
passage begins with Paul's plea to the church in verse 2. He says, make room in your hearts for us. Now, Paul is picking up something that he had said earlier in chapter 6, verses 11 through 13. You may recall that last week we said some scholars think that chapter 6, verse 14 to chapter 7, verse 1 are not genuine with Paul because they break up the narrative. We saw that that was not true, that that belongs exactly there, but it does remind us that that portion of chapter 6 is directly connected to our text this morning. Paul is expressing his love for the Corinthians and his desire that they return that love to him. And so he had interrupted himself to tell the Corinthians that they could not go back to their old ways. That they could not go back to their relationships with the world all around them. Because instead, the conclusion of his description of the new covenant and its ministry is that a new covenant people have been formed who are set apart from the world and joined by love. That's what Paul has been getting to at this point. Now, do you think about the church in this way? Not that the church is just simply a part of your life, but rather that it is the defining aspect of who you are. The church is not something that you just do, but rather it is what you are a part of, that God has made you a part of his church, that you are committed to the Lord and committed to others who are committed to him. And so Paul's plea is simple and heartfelt. He says, make room for us. Now, your translation may give you a clue to this because it may put the words in your hearts in italics to let you know that they are supplied by the translators. They are not in the Greek of this verse. But that doesn't make this a bad translation because it's obvious that Paul's picking up the same thought from before where he's been talking about the heart. He was telling the Corinthians to widen their hearts. And he said that his heart was wide open. And so it's obvious that the room that is to be made is in their hearts. Paul is talking about love. He's expressing his love for the Corinthians. Now, the verb here that he uses is different than he has used before. Previously, he asked the Corinthians to widen their hearts. Now here he tells them to make room in your hearts. And this verb has the idea of holding something or containing something. Perhaps the best known verse that uses this verb is in the Gospel of John, chapter 21, verse 25, where John tells us that if all the things that Jesus did had been written down, the world would not be big enough to contain, same word, all of the books that would be written. And so the idea here is of holding or containing. What Paul is saying is make a place in your life, in your affections, where I can live, where I can stay. He doesn't just want a momentary thought. He wants to live within their hearts. He wants this to be a deep and abiding love. This is not just a truce. It's not just a keeping of the peace. 
No, Paul wants an ongoing, vibrant relationship of love with that congregation. Now, have you thought about that in your own life, in your own interactions with other Christians? Do you think it's enough to just simply keep the peace, to find a truce, to nod at each other and say hello in the hall, to be able to say a kind word occasionally? What Paul's telling you is that's not sufficient for life in the kingdom. That life in the kingdom is about deep love. It's about making a place where people can stay and live. It might be the difference between having someone come and live in your home for two or three days and saying to them, this room is open. Stay as long as you'd like. As a matter of fact, I hope you don't ever want to leave. That's what Paul is saying to us should be our view of the church. Now, I've said this to you before, and it's just as crucial here, that context is very important when we study the Scriptures. Now, we have to remember what the context is that Paul is saying this. The context of this whole letter is that Paul had been criticized by the Corinthian congregation. That he had been falsely accused of being uncaring. They had listened to his enemies, and they had thought the worst of Paul. Paul had been wronged by this congregation. And yet, in the midst of that context, Paul is the one reaching out to them. He doesn't wait for them to come to him. He doesn't wait for things to be smoothed over. He reaches out to them in love. And this is important for us. Because too often we insist that others make the first move. We feel wronged and we expect others to fix it. But Paul shows that that is not the way of Jesus. Jesus makes the first step. And so Paul makes the first step here. He is the one seeking love and reconciliation. What do you think the church would look like if we all practiced this kind of active love. Well, Paul goes on to give the Corinthians a reason to respond positively to his plea. Now, what's important about this is that he's not just trying to prove that he's right or that he's good. He says, we have wronged no one. We have corrupted no one. We have taken advantage of no one. What Paul is saying here is, I want to take out of the way any barrier that there might be between you and me, Corinthians. And so in as comprehensive a way as he can, Paul meets any objection that they might have. And so he covers three categories that together encompass any accusation. And again, his language here is emotional. It's heartfelt. The rest of verse 2 that we see here is actually three verbs preceded by one noun. The noun, no one. There's no beating around the bush. Paul takes it head on. He says, no one we have wronged. No one we have corrupted. No one we have taken advantage of. Now, first notice the emphasis that he uses with no one. This is a bold statement for Paul. Not one person in the church can say he was wronged by Paul. Would you be willing to say that this morning? 
That no one has ever been wronged by you at any time in this church. That no one has ever been corrupted by you at any time in this church. That no one has ever been taken advantage of you. Paul says there's not one person who can stand up and say, Oh, wait a minute, Paul, do you remember? There's not one person here. And Paul is emphatic about this even in the word order that he uses. He precedes each of the verbs with this noun, no one. Being emphatic that there's not one person who can claim that Paul has wronged them. And then he repeats it three times in three slightly different ways, but the idea is the same. And all of the verbs here are in a simple past tense. There's not one occasion in which this happened. Then, I want you to see what Paul says he did not do. First, he says he did not treat anyone unfairly. He did not wrong anyone. What he means by that is his counsel to them, his word to them, had always been for their good. He had never advised anyone in any way that had harmed them. And even further, he's saying that whenever he needed to correct someone or to discipline someone, it was for the purpose of helping them, not hurting them. It was always for their benefit. And then Paul says that he has not corrupted anyone. He's not been the cause of anyone wandering from the faith. And this has at least two aspects to it. The first is that he has never taught any error that would corrupt the church and the people in it. Would that every minister of the gospel, so-called, could make this claim. Because there are far too many preachers who teach error, who teach against what God's word says is true, who even go so far as to say it's not important what God's word says. God's word has no authority. You can just listen to me or to the newspaper or to the internet. You don't need your Bibles. And this causes corruption amongst the people of God. It causes them to go astray, to believe wrongly, to doubt God's purpose in their life, to doubt God's covenant with them. But it's also about how Paul lived in their midst. Paul says, I didn't corrupt any of you by my actions. And again, I wish that were true today in our day and age. How many times have you seen a minister fall from grace because he had committed adultery or abandoned his family or robbed the church or done something that was a clear violation of God's law? And we wonder why the people in the pews and in the world think it's fine to break God's law. It's as if a sickness or disease that begins in the pulpit spreads to the church and then spreads out to the world. We need to realize that how we live and what we teach has an effect on others. Now you may say, but pastor, I'm not up in the pulpit preaching and teaching. As a matter of fact, there is no way you could ever get me in front of a large crowd of people to speak. And that may be true. But I ask you, do you have a husband? Do you have a wife? Do you have children? Do you have friends? Do you have co-workers? Neighbors? 
You see, how we speak and how we live is on display for the entirety of the world. Are we corrupting others around us by our false views of who God is and what Jesus has done? Are we corrupting the world around us by saying that sin is just fine and we can flout God's law? Paul says he never did that. And then third and finally, Paul says he's never taken advantage of anyone. And there is a specific accusation behind this. Several times in this letter, Paul makes reference to a collection that has been taken up for the church in Jerusalem. And there were some in the church in Corinth who actually accused Paul of skimming off the top of that collection. Of trying to use a collection in a church for his own financial well-being. Now, the ludicrous nature of this statement is plain to see not only from Paul's defense, but from the fact that we know that when Paul was at Corinth, he refused even to be paid for his ministerial services. Instead, he worked. He worked his own job to provide for himself so that he would not be a burden on the Corinthians. But again, far too often in the church... Money causes problems. How often have we seen someone arrested or disgraced for stealing from a missions organization? Or from the offering of a church? Or from widows or orphans in the community? In short, what Paul is doing is offering his integrity as a way to remind the Corinthians that he loves them. And that they should love him. Then Paul moves on to explain his deep relationship with them. And he does this in two ways. First, he explains that he is not using his defense to attack them. And then second, he shows that he can't be separated from them. He is talking about a togetherness that has been brought about by Jesus Christ. And so by both a negative, something that's not happening, and a positive, something that is happening, he tells them about their existing relationship with him. First, let's look at the negative. Paul says, I'm not saying this to condemn you. I said I haven't wronged anyone, I haven't corrupted anyone, I haven't taken advantage of anyone, and I'm not telling you that to condemn you. And when he uses this word, condemn, it's the same word that he used in chapter 3, verse 9, to describe the ministry of condemnation. That is, the law condemns those who have broken the law. And what Paul is saying here is, I'm not doing this to point out where you have violated God's law and you are justly condemned before God. Now this is Paul being pastoral and gentle. Being loving. Because we know Paul could have brought condemnation upon this congregation. He could have written to them and said, And you know, Joe, when you accused me that time of stealing from the offering, that was wrong and wicked. You know, Bob, when you said that I'm teaching false things, and I'm not true to the Bible, that was wrong and wicked. He could have called people to the carpet. But instead, Paul wants them to know that he's not out to attack them. Now, why would he do that? 
Well, have you ever had a disagreement with someone in which you experienced that someone defended themselves by attacking you? Or maybe even you've had a disagreement where you defended yourself by attacking them. You're in the midst of a disagreement and you say, well, you know what you did? Well, I remember when you, you know, you're not innocent here either. But that's not what Paul's doing here. Paul wants them to know this is not the case. And in doing this, he is giving up his rights for the benefits of others. He could have called them to account. Think about it. Some could have been condemned. They had said untrue and hateful things about Paul. They had falsely accused him. But he does not condemn them. Because instead, Paul has in mind the bigger picture. He's not concerned with winning. He's not concerned with being right, even though he is right. No, he's concerned with reestablishing the relationship that he had with the congregation at Corinth. How well would we do to learn from Paul here? How often are you tempted to do all you can to prove that you are right? How hard do you work to make others look bad so that you look better? This happens all the time, doesn't it? But it's not the way of Jesus. Jesus calls us to think the best of others and to love others, not to condemn them. But we should be familiar by now in our study of this letter that Paul does not just tell us what is not true. He also tells us what is true. And he explains that he doesn't condemn them because he is together with them in Christ. I do not say this to condemn you, for I said before that you are in our hearts to die together and to live together. Now, you remember that I said this passage is very emotional for Paul. And one sign of this is that Paul doesn't use those connecting words he normally does. Here he does. This is the one instance where he uses a connecting word. It's the word for. And it's important because it shows us the reason that it cannot be true that Paul is condemning them. The reason it cannot be true is because you are in our hearts, Paul says. He picks back up what he had said earlier in chapter 6, and he repeats it because it's so important. You could even say that this truth is more important than Paul being vindicated. The truth is that Paul has been joined so closely with them that they have taken up residence in his heart. Now, this is an interesting and effective way to talk about love. Paul doesn't emphasize the emotion that's involved. He doesn't talk about his love or about his actions. No, he rather says that they are a part of him. The emphasis here is on togetherness, on unity. Paul can't be separate from the believers at Corinth because Jesus has joined them together. 
The grammar here shows purpose. This word to. It's a purpose to die together and to live together. What Paul is saying is that the purpose of being united to Christ is his love for them. Now, often we think about this in the reverse. For example, we get married because we love someone. The love comes first, and then we unite to them. Or we do things with friends because we love each other, because we have a connection. But what Paul is saying here is that he is filled with love for them to the end or for the result that they would be one in Jesus. They are called to die to self and to live to Christ. God has filled Paul with love so that they might be united together. Now, do you notice here in the text that Paul reverses the typical order of why, the way we may say this? He says, to die and to live together. Now, we don't often say we die and live, right? We say we live and die. Because after all, that's the order of things, right? We live first and then we die. That's the natural order of things. But Paul's not talking about the natural order of things. He's talking about the supernatural order of things. He's talking about dying with Christ so that we might live with Christ. He's using gospel terminology here. We die to sin and we live under righteousness because Jesus has died and he lives now having risen to life. Do you see how important this is to Paul? More important than being proven right. More important than being vindicated. What is most important to him is that he sees others following Jesus and being bound to him by love. Let me ask you this. Is that how you interact with others? Both inside and outside the church? Does your love for Christ lead you to such a love for others. Because that is how others will know that you follow Jesus. The final thing that Paul shows us this morning is the boldness that comes from his relationship to them. Now, he has already made his call to them to make room in their hearts for him. He's taken away any excuse that they might have for being standoffish. He's shown his integrity. And then he repeated the fact of his relationship with them. And so now Paul shows the consequence of the relationship that Jesus has established. And I keep pressing this point here, but it's important that you see it. Paul is very emotional here. The language shows this. The first sentence of verse 4 has no verbs at all. I am acting with great boldness toward you. I have great pride in you. Literally would be. Great boldness to me for you. Great pride for me to you. There's not even a verb here to smooth this out. Another thing that you can't see here in this text is that Paul uses uh, a preacher's artifice. Alliteration. 
You know what alliteration is like. It's when all three of the preacher's points begin with the same letter. And preachers do that to help you to remember. And it doesn't happen all the time. It's, it's not something that is incredibly easy. But Paul's doing something like that here. He uses words over and over again that begin with the same letter. A P sound. And even other words have P sounds within them. And so it's emphatic. He wants us to pay attention. He wants us almost to memorize what he is saying here. We might even say that verse 4 is the very top of these six chapters in which he has been defending his ministry. And the consequence is that Paul is made bold. He has great boldness. Now, we have to see what kind of boldness he's actually talking about. Because normally, when we think of boldness, we think about defending ourselves. We think about speaking our mind. We think about our free speech rights. We think about standing before a crowd and not being afraid to tell them what we believe, what we are due, what we have earned. That's boldness. There's a sort of a self-centeredness to that kind of boldness. But Paul's boldness here was other-centered. Do you see it? He says, I am acting with great boldness toward you. He is acting with boldness for their benefit, not his own. That's what we've been looking at this morning. He's been so bold to engage them, so bold that he had to say, listen, I'm not condemning you. But I'm being bold to encourage you on to great love. I'm being bold to show you that you are united to Christ and therefore united to me. And he makes this boldness clear by the second half of his opening sentence. He says, I have great pride in you. Now, literally what he says is, much boasting in me for you. That is literally what he's saying is, I'm boasting on you. I'm bold about you. Do you see how that is different from the way of the world? The world boasts in itself. The world finds every opportunity it can to blow its own horn. And yet here, Paul, after having been falsely accused, after having had to reach out in reconciliation, after having to prove his ministry, now Paul wants to boast in the Corinthians. Can you imagine the scene as Paul goes to Thessalonica and he meets with the congregation there? And they ask him how the church in Corinth is doing. And they're wondering how Paul is going to lay into them for all of the bad things they've done to Paul. And Paul tells them, you know... They just have such a love for God's word. I'm so thankful for them. They are so good to each other. They help each other out. They encourage one another. They disciple one another. Paul spends all his time bragging on them. Again, I want to ask you, what would the church look like if we practiced this? If we practiced bragging on others? And how good they were. Even at times when they're not completely deserving of it. But you don't need to wonder what that looks like. 
You can put that into practice this week. Make that a part of your life this week. Boast in others around you. Have confidence in what Jesus is doing in them. In his church. Now you might ask, but pastor, I can see that this is the right thing to do. But how can I get past my discouragement and my pain? After all, I'm not the Apostle Paul. He's writing books of the Bible. He's planting churches left and right. I'm just an ordinary person. How could I possibly do this? Well, that is a good question to ask. Do you remember that God never asks obedience of you just because it is the right thing to do? Now, we are to obey God because it is the right thing to do, but God never asks us to obey solely because it is the right thing to do. No, God commands our obedience because it is also the best thing for us when we do it. And so Paul finishes our passage this morning on that note. He tells us that what is happening in his life is happening because he put these principles into practice. He has opened his heart wide to the Corinthians. He is born with their false accusations. He has pointed them to Jesus, and he shows that it is Jesus who binds them together. And the result of all of this has been a blessing for Paul. Paul says, I am filled with comfort. We might even say, I have been filled. This is something that Jesus has already done for Paul. It's a past tense verb. And the word here for comfort is one that's familiar to us. It means encouragement or help. It is the word that we get the name for the Holy Spirit, the comforter, from. Paul takes great comfort from putting these principles into practice. But more than that, Jesus has given Paul great joy. Now, this is not theoretical joy. It's not a joy that ignores the difficulties of life and of relationships. No. Paul says, In all our afflictions, I am overflowing with joy. Now, notice every word there is important. In that is, while we have the problems. You don't need to wait for your problems to go away before you can have joy in Christ. All. Not just certain problems or circumstances or trials. Not just the easy ones, the simple ones. But every single trial and circumstance that comes your way, you can have the joy of Jesus. Our. Those troubles that are personal to you. Not just something that you think about in society or in the culture or in your community, but it is personal to you. And then, of course, affliction. This is a word that means persecution, tribulation, distress. These are hard matters. These are not easy things to face. In all our afflictions... I am overflowing with joy, Paul says. Now, there is an important truth here for you and me. It is not true that when you come to Jesus, life is perfect and easy. 
it is not true that all fellow believers in the church will live in harmony and never have conflict. But it is true that the love of Christ brings to you a love that overflows to others. It is true that when we come to Jesus, we receive a family. And that is a cause for great, overflowing joy. The Bible tells us that where sin abounded, grace abounded all the more. So, here using that exact same word, Paul tells us that when affliction abounds, joy abounds all the more because of the work that Jesus does in you, in me, and in every believer. Let's pray.